You know, authority and order are kind of like two pillars that God seems to use as kind of the basic structure that he builds upon. And I think that's true whether you're considering the human body, there's the importance of order and authority and how our body is made up physically and how it functions properly. Whether you're talking about the family, authority and order are important as we're seeing in these chapters here. Whether you're talking about government or the church or even organizations or business, authority and order, they, they kind of uphold and provide the framework that gives stability to proper function in all those different arenas. And so therefore, how we handle authority, how we handle authority in order is really very important, whether it's that we're someone who is in authority to some degree, or whether we're someone functioning under another's authority. That's what this passage is trying to give us instruction about how to handle authority, how God designed and how God intends for order and authority to function, as you can tell, verse 20 and 21, in the family life, and then also how order and authority is to function, we could say, in the workplace. So the first thing he addresses, as we see here in verse 20 and 21, how order and authority is to operate in the family life. You look with me there in verse 20. The first instruction is given. God addresses the children with a command regarding the family life. He says, children... Obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. So the command to the children in the family life is that they're to realize and to respect the authority that God has given to their parental figures to actually be in charge. Yes, I did say that word. To be in charge over their lives as they're going through a developmental process of growing up into adult and independent life. So what the Bible is teaching is simply put that children are to yield to the decisions, to the instructions, to the guidance and the governance of their parents while they are still living dependently upon their parents under their care, under their provision in that role and relationship if they've not yet established independence. So God has designed, we can see in the Bible, for parents to have a stewardship. And that stewardship is a stewardship of authority over the children that God has given to them uh, to help them develop into adulthood. And as that authority is exercised in the child's life, it's actually for the benefit and the welfare of the child. It provides beneficial things like, for example, protection that is needed as a child is developing and maturing and learning how to make their own independent decisions. It prepares the child with character so they can learn how to successfully function as an adult one day when they do leave their parents' oversight. And healthy parenting, therefore, is going to include things like making decisions of what a child can or cannot do and establishing boundaries for that child according to how you would raise your children. It's going to involve things like instructing and teaching the child how to properly handle situations of life, how to handle responsibilities, uh, training the child how to appropriately conduct themselves in different situations, correcting the child's wrong attitudes at times, 
correcting behavior issues and and helping change bad habits that develop in every child's life from the moment that they're born and helping to cultivate and correct those things and even at times of course disciplining disobedience or rebellion against the authority and the governance of the parent in their life and good parenting listen i'm telling you good parenting is basically the absolute best training ground for a child to become a moral responsible productive adult if we want more moral responsible productive adults that will be a blessing to their society and not a burden to their community we need to focus on good parenting because that is what will make a tremendous distinction as that is given the attention it should and god knowing how that design is supposed to work therefore he says giving a command to children in the word of god and it's simply this children obey your parents he says there in the verse in all things now so there is no lack of clarity let's remind ourselves what the word obey actually does mean what it actually implies what it should look like because children obeying their parents should have a measurable evidence it won't be hard to see whether it's happening or not the word obey means to do whatever is asked of you it means to cooperate with what you're instructed it means to follow what you're told to do when a command or a request is given to you whether you're two years old or whether you're 12 years old or whether you're 16 years old it's to obey the command the instruction that's given to respectfully submit to the decision of the person who is in charge which is the parent so what obey looks like from a parenting perspective if a parent asks a child to do something it's not really complicated they're supposed to do it whether they like the instruction whether they enjoy what's being asked of them whether they want to perform the request that is made they are to obey the instruction that's given to them they're to honor the request that's been made because of the parental authority that the parent properly has by god's design in their life now for sake of greater clarity in case it was needed god felt that it was helpful to go on verse 20 to say obey your parents and the holy spirit made sure we grasped it he said in all things last i checked the word all means excluding nothing and including everything the word all means here it is in the greek all that's what it means it's a really incredible meaning it just means in all things so that means at all times whatever's being asked whether the child likes it or not despite that reality they are to still obey the apparent authority in their life uh, whether the child agrees with it or even understands and listen let me say i think that helpful communication and healthy communication from a parent to a child in decision making and raising them is a is a good thing and i think as they get older it becomes more helpful as they're reasoning things out to help them see the reasons for our decisions that being said children are not always entitled to an explanation of why a parent makes each and every decision that they make they're not entitled to that and we need to be careful that we're not boxed into a corner to feel that that's necessary when i was raising our girls when, when they were younger there was a christian radio station they had i think it was kids cookie break or something like that came on in the morning and we'd be riding around there was this song that somebody wrote it was really fantastic it had a line in it it was basically a dialogue between like a, a dad and his little kids and the course was because i said so 
and I'm your dad and that's all you need to know because I said so. I love that song. Whenever it came on, I was cranking it. Just, Listen to this, kids. Because you know, I said so. I'm your dad and that's all you need to know. I mean, just... The, 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 because the reality is that's theologically accurate. That, that is theologically accurate. That is God's proper order for family function in a healthy and an appropriate way. And I think the greatest example of this truly is looking at the example of none other than the perfect human being, the perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jot into your notes there, if you're a note taker, Luke chapter 2, verse 40 to 52. Let me just read it to you and listen to this description of what happened with Jesus and his earthly parental figures. It says, The child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of the Lord was upon him. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. And when they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went on a day's journey and sought him among the relatives and the acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, first of all, let me just say, that should liberate any parent. They lost the Son of God. I mean, you ever go to an amusement park? It happened to us, amusement park, and you lose one of the little ones, and my wife's freaking out, you know, and, and you, here's Mary and Joseph. They're entrusted with the Savior, the Son of God. They go to Jerusalem for worship. There's big caravans and just you know thousands and thousands of people. And, and as they're moving in a big caravan back to their hometown, they just assume you know the kids are running around, the cousins, the nieces, the nephews, they're all playing and the adults are up here talking. And all of a sudden, they hey, can somebody grab Jesus? And they realize Jesus isn't with them and they've gone a whole day's journey and they lost Jesus. I mean, talk about a little bit of stress there. So they now go back to Jerusalem looking for Jesus and it says after three days, that must have been a stressful three days, they found him. It says sitting in the midst of the teachers in the temple, both listening to them and asking questions and all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. His mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And Jesus answered, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Now, interesting. Jesus thought that they would understand. Didn't you know I would be about my true father, my heavenly father's business? But yet here they obviously are concerned. They find Jesus. But here's the key. This is Luke 2 verse 50. It says they did not understand the statement which Jesus spoke to them, but then verse 51, here's our verse, they went down with he went down with them and came to Nazareth and Jesus was subject to them. He subjected himself to Joseph and Mary's authority as the parental figure in his life. Now I want you to see this. Interesting, the story the Bible gives us when Jesus was 12 years old. Let me just say I think Jesus is probably the only 12-year-old kid in human history who could ever say he was a perfect child and who could honestly say accurately, I know more than my parents do. Right? And yet, Jesus, as the perfect 
human being showing the righteous example of what it meant to honor God as a developing child at 12 years old submitted himself to his parents' authority and was subject to their desires and, and honored the authority in their life as a parental figure and, and set that beautiful example. I personally tend to think that that example of Jesus' life, that little snapshot, is probably almost purposeful because any of us who've raised kids you know, know that 12 years old, I mean, that's kind of like, that, that's like a transitional age there. That 12-year-old age bracket there, you know, you have younger ones, you think, oh, this is how, <laughs> wait till 12. <laughs> 12 years old is kind of that, you know, it's, it's a unique age because they go through a transition where their conscience is kind of awakening around that age bracket. They're starting to develop their own convictions. They want to understand why and why not and, and how come, and they're trying to reason things out, and, and they're beginning to establish their own independence and it's a process it's a natural normal process but that comes together with opinions and attitudes and idealistic ideas and i know better than you do and 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 that's it's an interesting stage of life and i think therefore how interesting that jesus at 12 years old the bible shows us here there he is at 12 junior higher and he says mom dad i'll submit to your authority if i mean I think, you're trying to tell me to lead church I'm in the temple here. I mean, what kind of parents are you? You're not spirit. But Jesus just subjected himself to their authority. This beautiful, beautiful illustration that God gives to us of what it means like for a child to be obedient and subject and submissive to parental authority. And the basis, as if we would need one in verse 20, is given for why children should obey their parents. It says, verse 20, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. The idea is when a child obeys their parent as they're supposed to, it pleases the Lord. Ephesians 6 says, children, obey your parents for this is right. That is, it's the right and proper thing to do. So the primary way, honestly, that a child can learn how to serve the Lord at a young age, the primary way they can learn to serve the Lord is by being responsive to the authority of their parents. By being obedient to their parent and, and honoring their authority and respecting that, that is what the Bible says is what's well-pleasing to the Lord and what's right, which also means, listen, please hear me, that also means the opposite of that is true. That also means when a child is disobedient to their parents, it's not pleasing to the Lord. It also means when a child is disobedient to their parents, it's wrong. Now, the last I checked when something was disobedient and displeasing to the Lord and wrong, I thought the Bible referred to that as sin. And I think as parents, we need to help our young children and our aging, growing children throughout the season until they move out and establish their independence to understand the gravity of rebellion against their parents' authority, that it's not pleasing to the Lord. That it's sinful. It's honestly transgression against the authority of God and against the word of God. And that's why parents, we must responsibly embrace the God-given role to function in a capacity where we faithfully correct our children and we consistently discipline our children as is needed in their lives. The Bible speaks of this continuously, particularly the book of Proverbs. Listen to some of the Proverbs. Proverbs 22:15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from them. Do you hear what the Bible says? Look, it's hardwired. They're children. Foolishness, immaturity, 
you know, being mistake prone, it's, it's bound up in the heart of a child. And our job is to gradually, consistently, through correction, drive out of them foolish and wrong behaviors and habits and things that would not be healthy as they progress into adulthood through correction. Proverbs 13, 24, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Proverbs 23, do not withhold correction from a child. For if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. They may say that. I'm dying, stop, daddy. You're not dying. Trust me, you're not dying. I'm actually keeping you from killing yourself is what I'm doing. I'm helping you against the self-destructive tendencies in your life that if left unchecked will cause horrible problems. He says, and you will deliver his soul from hell. Wow. Because we're subduing sinful, selfish tendencies. Proverbs 29 says this, the rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. The rod and rebuke, that is correction and verbal counsel. And there's a balance there. It doesn't always have to be corporal punishment. Counsel is a vital, important thing as well. Just rebuke, speaking. And listen, as good parents, good parenting means that we are going to graciously, please hear me, in light of this, we're going to graciously understand that our children are not perfect. No more than we're not perfect. They are sinful. They're mistake-laden. They're childish. They're immature. They're learning. They're growing. And so they're going to fail. They're going to make mistakes. I used to tell my kids all the time, listen, I don't expect perfection, but I do require honesty when there's been imperfection. That's all. They're not going to be perfect, partly because of childish immaturity, partly because they're sinful like us, yet we can't be cowardly or lazy in regards to providing correction in their life when it's necessary to help them through those processes, to discipline them for their best interests so they can live pleasing lives to the Lord and so that, again, bad and unhealthy habits can be purged from their life and we can develop good character and good habits in their life instead. Now, to keep the family life healthy and in balance, he next addresses the fathers in verse 21. He says, And fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, a companion verse to Colossians 3 here is in Ephesians 6, 4. It says it this way. You fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now, you notice both here and in Ephesians, the father is who is addressed. And I think predominantly probably because God honors the authority of the father figure in the home to be the lead role in the family. And that's appropriate. That being said, the principle applies to both parents either way. In fact, remember verse 20 said, children, obey your parents, plural, with an S, meaning that doesn't just mean a child is supposed to obey their father, that he's the bad guy and mom's the good guy who just coddles every time. Children are to obey their parents, plural. But I think the father here is probably addressed because of the emphasis that God simply wants to put upon the important role of the father, that by God's design, fathers are to understand and embrace their God-given authority, to confidently lead their own family and to properly rule their own household whether that's in instructing morally or training spiritually or correcting and disciplining. Yet God in verse 21 here to the parents, having talked about children obeying, he now to balance this cautions parents 
of the potential mistake that we can all be guilty of as parents. And the potential mistake, he says there in verse 21, is provoking or discouraging our children. And the way that this can happen is when we make the mistake of overdoing things in our parental authority. That if we are not careful, the authority of a father, listen, is not to be mishandled. It's not to be abused. It's not to be wrongly used in a way where it then frustrates a child. Or worse, it crushes the spirit of a child because the father in his authority trip allows his human pride to begin to function in an unhealthy way where he starts to function like a little domestic dictator. And he likes this idea of being in charge in the home. And that egotistical thing begins to work where then the father begins out of balance to focus more on just trying to control and exercise control over his family with a domineering, overbearing spirit in a way where it gets out of balance and he starts barking commands in a harsh attitude and he's going to intimidate and force everybody to come under subjection to him. Let me tell you, if you have to intimidate and force your family to come in subjection to you, you've lost control of your family. Your leadership has malfunctioned. You should be earning the respect. And listen, I'm not saying there aren't times to be stern. There are times, you can ask my family, I have put my foot down and I have been stern. But there's a very different thing when on occasion you realize that you need to draw the line and assert your leadership as compared to functioning like this sort of you know, little ongoing dictator where you're always just going to you know, force and keep everybody under control and in an unhealthy way. Because look, that's not proper. That's just human arrogance and inflated sense of self-importance. And the Bible's saying here that will tend towards just provoking our children making them discouraged and disheartened. Instead of feeling lovingly cared for, the child starts to feel like that they're being controlled like a prisoner by this overbearing person who just wants to you know, subject them to their authority. And all of a sudden, as you see here, he says a child can become quite discouraged. They feel disheartened. They begin to find themselves sort of, you know, kind of smothered under that. And fathers and mothers are supposed to be trying to care for the family by cultivating an attitude of love and respect. We want to cultivate a respectful attitude between us and our kids where they respect us. And so, yes, they understand we're in charge, but they know just as much that we love and care for them tremendously. And so it's almost a balance where you can't even tell the difference that, that uh, yes, I have a measure of authority over your life, but it's because I love you so much that I do this. And, 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 and there's that blended thing where there's that mutual respect between the parent and the child. Remember, Ephesians 6 says, as we read it, that we are to be bringing up our children in the training of the Lord, which means one of the fundamental roles of parenting is our goal is to prepare our children to meet Jesus. It's to help our children come into a relationship with Jesus Again, I can expose my children to Christ, but that's very different than bringing my children to a place where they have their own experience with Christ. I mean, you could drag them to church and force them to have a devotional time and make them read their Bible and, and expose them to Christ, but that's very different to helping them come to a place where they actually have their own experience with Christ. That's the goal. We want them to experience Christ and we want to train them what it looks like to, to live for the Lord via our personal example, how we teach them and what we speak to them. 
by making sure that, that we're living a lifestyle that shows them this is how you serve the Lord. This is how we live for the Lord as a family, the boundaries we keep, the priorities our home life has, and so on and so forth. And as parents, we're to be good representations of the Lord. Listen, so our children actually want to follow the Lord. That they see us living for the Lord and they respect us and they see us cultivating, helping them to come into that place of an experience themselves. And if as parents we become unloving and unkind and harsh and domineering and abusing our authority or we start to become hypocritical or inconsistent, one of the grave dangers is we can cause confusion in the hearts and minds of children. And all of a sudden, as is referenced here, they begin to become bitter and discouraged and we can actually provoke them to resistance against the Lord. We can actually dishearten them and discourage them in their spiritual potential. I think another way that verse 21 is certainly applicable to parents that we can provoke our kids to anger or discourage them is by simply putting unrealistic expectations upon your kids. And sometimes this can be something parents are guilty of in regarding what they respect from their kids. They have standards, but they're just unrealistic standards. Sometimes parents, you know, perhaps we've all seen before, you can see it at a you know, football field or a basketball game, and they're harshly pushing and criticizing their kids' performance in sports. I mean, it's just brutal. I mean, what they demand of Johnny and what he's got to do, and not you, Johnny, but, you know, just so you don't make fit. Just we, we can <laughs> we can really go overboard and we have these expectations of what we want to see our kid achieve and, and sometimes we're oblivious to the fact we want to be so proud of them that sometimes we want to be so proud of them we're pushing and we're setting the bar so high that our kid starts to feel like that their whole life is just you know this heavy weight of having the pressure to perform and I always got to perform because I got to impress dad or make mom happy. And, and there's always this constant awkwardness of it's so hard to gain approval. It's so hard to get acceptance. I mean, if I'm not doing this or my grades or this or that or how good I play an instrument, the child lives under this constant sense of pressure and they start to get angered by that. They start to be provoked. They start to despise their parent and they start to find themselves discouraged because of this kind of unrealistic expectation and I tell you as parents we can even do this spiritually don't have unrealistic spiritual expectations for your kids because you can discourage and provoke your kids by getting a little too legalistic upon them and having unrealistic expectations where you can provoke them to anger and your good intention to see them be this stellar Christian may send them running from the Lord and we have to be careful as parents that we're wise and pay attention. And when we begin to err in this area that we as parents are quick to repent of it and to recognize it and to reconcile it if we need to. Well, with this idea of order and authority, he then addresses the issue of how that functions in the workplace in the remaining verses. And important as we look at this, we remember in the Roman Empire in first century, it was very commonplace to have household slaves or servants who help maintain families and estates to operate their affairs. And basically, here's what the key to remember, the servant would basically receive lodging and food and compensation from their master in regards to the work that they would perform. Now, we don't have 
typically today in our modern culture here in America, you know, slave and master or servant and master associations. But this certainly is very applicable to us as it matches the structure of employee and employer. So we'll look at it from that perspective. He says, verse 22, bond servants or employees, we could easily say, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. So we see here in the workplace, order and authority is to work in this way. First of all, that employees are to respect the authority of their boss. And just like the child obeys the instruction of their parent by doing whatever is asked, in the same way, the employee under the authority of their supervisor, their boss, their employer is to do what is asked and follow instructions. I really believe that in the place of our employment, we have one of the greatest opportunities to be a good testimony for the Lord. Not by what we say, preaching the gospel, certainly when the door opens, do that. But Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and they glorify your Father in heaven. And any of us who've been in the secular environment, it comes to pass really quick that you start to realize that being just a good, hardworking, responsible, reliable, compliant, uncomplaining employee would make you stand out quite a bit. Because we live in a culture where people's attitudes are so anti-authority. Many people in the workplace are complaining about and disputing over and, and being resistant to and dismissing and even flat out rebelling at times what their boss or supervisor wants. And look, that's, that's just inappropriate. I mean, it's, it's just out of line. Remember, they've given you a job. They're allowing you the opportunity to work and make money that you need. So quite frankly, in light of that, it's our obligation as employee to do whatever they ask of us. They're paying us. They're giving us a chance to work and to generate income to help provide for ourselves. And we're to be faithful and obedient servants to their instruction. We're to recognize and respect their authority and follow whatever order they give to us. To recognize that's healthy. We may not like what they ask us to do, of course. We may not want to do it the way they tell us to do it. That's all normal experience. But here's the thing. They're the boss. They're the boss. And that's what bosses are supposed to do. Bosses are supposed to be in charge. They, they have a God-given right, the Bible says, to decide things, to tell us what to do. And unless they ask you as an employee to do something, listen, that is illegal or unethical or that is a direct violation of a scriptural truth, we're to obey our boss, our supervisor, period. We're to render obedience to them and follow their instruction and honor their decisions. And he begins to explain what that looks like going on in verse 22. He says, obey them in all things. And then he says, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. So we're not only as an employee to work or act productive when their eye is on us, rendering eye service the idea is we're rendering service to their eye to make them feel like oh looks like they're working but we're only doing it when they're looking and it's just we're servicing their eyes but we're not giving them genuine service when we're on the clock when we're supposed to be doing things we don't really offer them true service we're just doing a little work when they're aware of our activity and not really being a faithful employee when we're unsupervised that's the idea there, not rendering eye service. Instead, the Bible says we should work, look at it, in sincerity of heart, fearing God. That is, we should be a sincere, genuine worker. 
a hard worker, working productively and responsibly whenever we are on company time. And look, that's not rocket science. Let's be honest. We know when we're on company time. We know what's expected of us. And the reason is we do it because we fear God. And we know that God's our ultimate supervisor, right? And so the Lord, above anybody else, is aware of our work or lack of work. God sees our work ethic. And God takes that into consideration and will hold us accountable. This is what the verses go on to say. Verse 23, he encourages whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. So there's a proper perspective of how we should approach all the work that we do. He says, whatever it is that we do, whatever your line of work is, whatever your responsibilities involve, whatever task you take on that you're assigned, whatever work you're supposed to perform, he says, whatever it is, work at it heartily. The idea is, give it your best. Do it in a conscientious way. You know, if you're a, a, a waiter or waitress, you be the best waiter or waitress you can be. If you have a desk job and you're typing things up, then you do the best job that you can do. If you're dealing with customers or making decisions or making widgets or swinging a hammer, that you do it with all of your heart and you give your absolute best. I think a way of looking at that is, is, is quite frankly, just caring about the quality of your work. Who has not had something done for them that you hired someone else, maybe, in the, and, and, and yet, and you say, do these people care about what? I just paid all this money, and the quality of work clearly says we really don't care about the quality of our work. We just care about you're going to pay us afterwards. Look, we, we want to do the opposite of that, that we work at it heartily. We give our best. Doing it, he says, as for the Lord and not for men. That is, whatever we do, our standard of excellence is Jesus. And we say, Lord, I want to work in a way where are you pleased with my performance today? Are you pleased with how I did this project or how I built that wall or you know, painted that room or, or, or took care of that customer or you know, handled my responsibilities at my desk? Lord, are you pleased with that? And, and so listen, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, he says, as to the Lord. So whether it's work you do in your job, whether it's your domestic duties and work at home, whether you're a student, that's your job. Whether you're doing ministry work, put your whole heart into it, do it thoroughly, give your best. And what would it look like if more of us as people took verse 23 seriously? The quality of work in ministry as students in our job places, if whatever we did, we would do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men as a way to please the Lord. He says, verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. So notice, because we serve the Lord and we do it for the Lord, he sees our effort and the Bible assures us he will honor us accordingly and reward us for what we deserve for our hard work because that's a normal tendency. Well, I mean... I'm not going to do it. I'm going to put in all that work. My boss don't see what I'm doing. He doesn't see what a good job I'm doing. He, you know, how's he even going to... And so we begin to justify. Listen, he says, the Lord sees what you're doing. You're doing it for the Lord. And he says, knowing, being confident that from the Lord is who you'll receive your reward in time. Even if no one else notices what you do in your job. Even if no one else sees how much effort you put into cleaning your home. You know, nobody sees. I'm not. Look, the Lord sees. 
And he's well pleased. He said, I appreciate it. You did a really great job cleaning that bathroom. The time you took to fold those clothes and you just, you did a great job. And the Lord sees. And the Lord keeps track. And the Lord is fully aware to know how you serve and he will make sure, says, knowing from the Lord, you'll receive the reward. And look, that reward sometimes will come by the Lord giving you favor in your job. Where whether your boss sees or knows that God has a way of favoring and honoring you in your place of employment. And I've seen where the Lord's able to make sure you get proper compensation. He's able to make sure that if you deserve that raise or need that raise, that you get the raise. That he allows you to be the one to get the promotion in some way. And sometimes even if you're not rewarded in the temporal way, the Lord will make sure that you're rewarded in some other way. Because Jesus says in Revelation 22, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So you work hard, you do it for the Lord, and trust, Lord, no one else sees, but you do, and I trust you're going to reward me. I trust you're going to reward me for serving and working in the way that I do. Yet we also see in verse 25, the Lord's supervision over our work, look at it, it operates both ways to keep us in balance. Verse 25, he says, But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. And there is no partiality. So here's the warning on the other side of the Lord being our ultimate supervisor. He says, if we begin to disregard authority in our place of employment, God will allow us to answer for what we've done wrong at times. He says to us here, if we begin to do what's wrong in our workplace, we shouldn't think just because we're a Christian, we're going to be spared from the consequences. He says very clearly in verse 25 here, there is no partiality. Just because I may confess what I did was wrong doesn't mean that I'm not accountable for the wrongdoing that I've done. Which means this, and it's very important. Even as a Christian, if we start to break the rules, we start to violate policies in our workplace, we start coming in late and slacking off or not showing up or taking breaks when we should not, or we start to become disrespectful towards our boss or you know, disobey what they ask us to do or, or maybe even worse, maybe do something unethical or immoral. The Bible says to us here, he who does wrong will be repaid for what he's done. In other words, you may still be disciplined for what you've done. And that may result even in perhaps maybe even losing a job. But if losing a job is what the Lord needs to do to help your heart spiritually to humble you or I or to bring us into a proper perspective, the Lord's not afraid to let us reap what we sow because he's a good parent. And just like we want to teach our kids, the Lord wants to teach us. So he says, look, if you're violating things you shouldn't be violating, uh, don't think God won't hold you accountable. You, you may just suffer the consequence of that in some way. And then chapter 4, verse 1, he finally addresses the last person, which is now the boss or the supervisor who holds the place of authority. He says, masters or bosses, we might say, give your bondservants what's just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So the instruction here is to the one who may be in a role of being a supervisor or boss, that they're to use their authority in a healthy and in a helpful way to assist their workers and to remember, he says, verse 1, that they also will answer to a higher authority for their treatment of the people who serve under them. Bosses are told, look at it, verse 1, to give their employees or workers what is just or right and what is fair. That is to treat their employees with dignity and give them what is fair in relation to the work they do. That is never trying to take advantage of an employee 
and this whole kind of thing of, well, I'm going to get the most out of them for the least amount of pay. That's corporate America. That is not a Christian supervisor. Well, let me just get as much out of them for the least amount of cost, but rather that you would properly compensate your employees, that you would take good care of those that you're able to be an oversight over. Bosses are instructed to treat their employees well, to bless them, to do what's just and fair, to help them excel in their line of work and to help keep them accountable for how they handle their authority and use of it. He says, knowing being aware, he says, that you also have a master in heaven. See, the person in any role of authority, and particularly here, the person who's a supervisor or a boss, is to realize that they are still under a greater authority. The chief supervisor, the master in heaven, the, the Lord who is watching all things, and everyone in authority will give account for how they used their authority whether they use their authority in an inappropriate way or a selfish way or an abusive way and they mistreated maybe workers and employees and people that God loves or whether they use their authority as a boss in such a way where they use that role as a leader to bless people and to care for them and to try and be a channel for God to empower them. He reminds them, be aware, you're still under authority yourself. Now, and you look at this section here, verse 18, as he talks about marriage, wives, husbands, children, parents, bosses, workers. As you look at these practical things, what a great reminder for how all of us are to understand the value of how we are to handle and respond to authority. And the key, I think, is found at the end of this section in the end of verse 1 is to just simply remember that we all have a master in heaven we all have a master in heaven we all are ultimately accountable for how we handle authority whether we're someone under authority or someone who's exercising authority that we are to remember and we will do the best job to function rightly in regards to authority if we remember we ultimately all have a master in heaven and, and I tell you something the best way to learn how to have a right attitude and to function properly on this earth is to remember that you have a master in heaven. Whether you're talking about marriage relationships and getting it to function the way it's supposed to, whether you're talking about child-parent relationships or, or, or work scenarios, the best thing that could possibly be done would be that each person would bow their knee in submission to Jesus because that is where it all starts. It all starts. You know, so often when I meet with married couples, you know, they'll sit down and, and they start to share and, you know, he confesses all of her sins for a few minutes. Then she confesses all of his sins for a few minutes. Somehow we forgot we're supposed to confess our own sins. But, you know, but they, and you listen, you listen, and you realize, truly, you realize as you listen and ask a few questions, you don't really fundamentally have marriage issues. You both have lordship issues. You don't technically have a marriage problem foremost. You have a lordship problem. Because if you would submit yourself in right relationship to Jesus and his mastery and lordship over your life, you would begin to function differently and view things differently. And if you would begin to do the same, something very marvelous begins to happen. So listen, 
well, how do I live out those marriage rules? I don't know if I could do that. Hello, right. Submit to your master in heaven. Jesus, I'm dependent upon you. I can't be the husband or wife I'm supposed to be unless you fill me with your spirit because apart from you, Jesus, I can't do anything. I can't be the husband. I can't be the wife I'm supposed to be. I can't embrace my role properly. Children, parents, same thing. Workers, bosses, that's the key. Bowing the knee in submission because when a person comes in right relationship with Jesus as the master of their life, on the vertical, everything starts to begin to work out properly on the horizontal. Would you bow your heads and pray with me?